Welcome to Pole Creek. How are y'all doing this morning? Isn't it great to worship in God's house? Give Him glory and praise. He's worthy today, isn't He? Amen to that. Amen. Well, today we're going to be preaching a sermon, The Bible All or Nothing. The Bible All or Nothing. And if you want to, you can go ahead and flip in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. And I believe in the day and age that we're living, this is a needful sermon to be preached, a valuable thing for us all to hear. So when you found your place, you can stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Amen. So beginning in verse 16, the Bible says this, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. God, we love you, and Lord, today we are thankful for the inspired scriptures, the scriptures that you breathe out of your very own mouth, the scriptures that teach us who you are, what life is all about, what our purpose is in life, what is right, what is wrong. Lord, we are thankful that you revealed yourself in your holy word. So today, God, as we look, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, that you would align our minds with your word and with your truth, that we would understand that there is an absolute truth today, and that truth is your truth. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm talking to both men and women here when I, when I ask this question, but I kind of feel like maybe men more so than women, but you ladies can correct me if I'm wrong. How many of you like assembling things that you buy from the store? Raise your hand if you actually enjoy that. Charlotte? <laughs> Shirley? And it's women that enjoy it. Gwenda? Man, just women that enjoy that? I, I, can, I can see why, because men hate that stuff, don't we? <laughs> I mean, I'm of the opinion that if I'm going to spend my hard-earned money to buy something, shouldn't it actually be put together for me when I buy it? Why do I need to buy something that I have to spend hours to put together? Listen, I guess that's a, the American way, I guess. I don't know what it is. But, you know, you think about kids' toys. You get these big, elaborate playhouses that take hours to put together, swing sets, trampolines, and we all know about furniture, right? I mean, the, the, the small dresser that you think, ah, oh, that's no big deal. And three hours later, you still don't have it put together. So one thing that I guarantee at least all of you men do. Now, ladies, I can't speak for you. Maybe you like reading directions. But most of us men, what we'll do is, is we'll get the thing out of the box. We'll get all the pieces spread on the floor. And we'll stand there and look at it for a minute, trying to figure out, can I put this thing together without the directions? <laughs> is that even possible? Because I promise you, if it's possible, we're going to do it without reading the directions. Amen? Amen? All right, good. I'm not alone in that. Thank God. Now, this is a, a word that when I hear it, I don't know, like modern-day psychology, it's called a trigger. You know, you, you guys have triggers? Basically, it's PTSD is what it is. <laughs> when I hear the word Ikea, <laughs> do any of you men are sympathizing with me right now about Ikea? Now, there's not one in Asheville, 
but there's still one close enough for my wife to get down there every once in a while. It's in Charlotte. And usually when she goes down there, she comes back with something. And for some reason, this company called Ikea, I think it's a Swedish company or whatever, they don't know how to produce anything that doesn't need to be put together. And I promise you that there is nothing they make, men, that you can put together without the directions. Nothing. Okay? Sometimes it kind of goes like this. Okay? Now listen to this. This is an example of the directions you're going to get in Ikea instruction manual. Take dowel rod E2 and insert it into shelf 4A. Then take screw A6, washer B7, and insert into the left side of the door. And then you look at the diagrams, and it looks like something they built the space shuttle with. Amen? Well, I say all this to make a point. Life is absolutely impossible to understand without the Bible. Just like it's impossible to put anything together from Ikea without the instruction manual. So that kind of leads us into our first point. We're going to ask three questions today, and we're going to answer all three of these questions about the Bible, about the inspired Word of God. So if you're taking notes, write this down. The first question is, where did the Bible originate? Where did the Bible originate? Very important to ask. And I think, honestly, people who are analytical, the skeptics in our society, the folks who don't uh, grow up in church, they're asking that question. They're saying, well, why in the world would I base my entire life, my entire understanding of the world on this ancient book? Where did it originate and where did it come from? Well, the scripture here actually testifies of itself in verse 16. We're only going to evaluate this first part of verse 16, and it says this, All scripture is inspired by God. So just like any instruction manual written, as we talked about the Ikea, we talk about toys and all those other things, those instruction manuals are written by the folks who designed either the equipment or the merchandise that you've purchased. No one is going to know that item better than the one who designed it. No one is going to know how it works better than the one who designed it. That's why they have the authority to tell you how to assemble those items. Men, as you're working on your truck, some of you, if you've ever heard of a Haynes manual, you're working on your car, a Haynes manual basically tells you how to completely disassemble your entire vehicle and put it back together. It is a book that is an expert on that piece of machinery. Well, in the same way, the Bible is God's instruction manual for us in our lives, for us as human beings, for the struggles that we face. Why are we here? How did we get here? What is our purpose? What is good and evil? What is this life really all about? And if we'll all be honest, we're all asking those same questions. When our dark moments of our lives, when things aren't making sense, when our life is falling apart, we are asking those questions. And as we're asking those questions as Christians, we need to understand that there is a world of lost people who are asking the very same questions. But now we have something that the world doesn't have. We have God's inspired word that we know is truth. We have a lost world out there who has not yet discovered the truth of God's word, who doesn't yet rest their faith and their understanding in the inspired word of God. So that gives us the challenge that we need to be about God's business. We need to be about taking God's holy and inspired word that God breathed and inspired out of his own mouth to a lost and a dying world. 
Listen, the Bible is very clear. You can either take it all or you take none of it. We have a sect of Christianity today known as liberal Christianity, liberalism, theological liberalism, that's teaching people to take parts of the Bible that they like and to discard the parts they don't like. Well, I'm here to tell you that if you decide to do that, you might as well take your whole Bible and throw it in the trash can. If you don't take every word to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, then none of it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. You have to believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you don't believe that verse, that initial verse, the rest of the Bible is completely meaningless. Jesus dying on the cross is completely meaningless if in the beginning God did not create the heavens and the earth. Every scripture, remember that scripture passage that I preached a few weeks back about Shamgar? You may think, Ben, that is probably the most irrelevant passage in the Bible. Let me tell you this. The verse about Shamgar is just as important as John 3.16. And if you start to focus on the passages that you like, you're becoming your own God and you are deciding what you need and what you don't need. Did you hear what verse 16 says there in chapter 3? All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture. You know the difficult passages in Leviticus? Guess what? They're inspired by God. The difficult passages in Numbers, the difficult passages in Judges, the minor prophets, the Gospels, the the historical books, they're all inspired by God. Therefore, they are all of equal significance in my life and in your life. We don't get to discard any of it. We don't get to choose what we need and don't need because we are not qualified. We are not the designer. We are not the builder. We are not the ones who put this thing together. We are not the ones who determined the purpose of each of our lives. The creator and the designer, God Almighty, is the only one that gets to decide those things. And until we entrust that into his hands, he is the only one qualified with authority. Until we give that to him, we're going to live a life of hopelessness, a life of darkness, and a life of lostness. You wonder why the world's so crazy today? You wonder why drug abuse is at an all-time high? You wonder why suicide rates are at an all-time high? It's because the human population on planet Earth has decided that they know what's better for themselves than the designer and the creator who made them. They've decided they don't need God anymore, and they're going to make their own decisions. What happens is when we forsake the wisdom of God and embrace our own wisdom, it always leads to destruction. You say, Ben, I don't know why I can't get my life together. Are you living in sin? Have you decided to tell God, God, I don't need you to be in this part of my life? Have you you told God, God, just leave me alone and let me do my own thing? He'll let you do your own thing, by the way. He respects your free will. He didn't create a bunch of robots. But let me tell you what. When you decide to do it your way, you're also deciding to take the consequences that come with that. Hey, listen, I learned my lesson with Ikea. You better better listen to the instructions. (laughs) If you care as much about your own life as you do that dresser, you'll listen to God's instructions. And you'll do things according to his will and his way. That word inspired there in verse 16 literally means God breathed. See, the human writers of the Bible did not speak truth into God. God spoke truth into them. They then wrote it down for us to read today. This originated from God, from the mind of God, from the heart of God. When you read this Bible, you are literally reading words that originated with him. His own wisdom, 
his own truth. Everything about God that we know comes from this Bible. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says this. I want you to listen to this carefully. Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. And what prophecy means is the scripture. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing. The writers of the Bible spoke out of the overflow of their heart. As they drew close to God, God gave them the very words to write. A lot of people say, you know what, Ben, that Bible's written by a bunch of men, and they made that stuff up. It's a myth. It's a fairy tale. How can you explain over the course of 1,500 years, 66 books, over 40 different writers, many of them didn't even live in the same lifetime or knew each other, but this Bible is cohesive like one solid story. It's a narrative from beginning to end. It's as though one person sat down and wrote this entire book. Did you know that Jesus is mentioned in the third chapter of Genesis? Did you know that even God said, let us make man in our own image? You know what he's referring to? The Trinity, the Holy Trinity. Listen, at that point in Scripture, we don't know anything about the Son, but the Son is there. You say, Ben, that's by coincidence. Are you kidding me? 1,500 years, 66 different books, over 40 different writers, and that's by coincidence. You know how many prophecies have been fulfilled in the Bible that we know about? Thousands. Now, that's a coincidence, right? No. That's the holy, inspired word of God. And we can trust it, we can rest in it, and we can know that it originated with God. And I want you to hear this today. God's truth is ultimate truth. God's truth rises above societal truth, whatever you hear on social media, whatever you hear in the latest movie, whatever you hear in your textbooks at school, whatever you hear from people you love and care about. God's truth rises above all that. And when you hear truth, quotation marks, that contradict the truth of God's word, it immediately becomes a lie. God's word is truth always, no matter what society says, no matter what our federal government says, no matter what our politicians cram down our throats. God's word is truth. And I am thankful today that if you go out in this hallway, Pole Creek's core values, our number one core value, in other words, that one, number one value that we are not going to negotiate as a church is scripture being our foundation. We will always stand, as long as I'm here, we will always stand on the word of God. And I hope Pole Creek always has a congregation that will hold their pastor to that very thing. Stand on the Bible. Don't give me your opinion. Don't give me what you think. Tell me what God's word says, because that and that alone is ultimate truth. So the next question, if you want to write this one down, the next question we want to answer about the Bible is this. What does the Bible do? So we know where it originated. It originated from the very breath of God himself. But what does it do? What's it intended for? Well, in the second part of verse 16, we find this out. It says, talking about Scripture, is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. The Bible answers questions. Did you know that? And it's a good thing because we as human beings... We all have questions, and that's natural, and that's okay. That's how we learn. That's how we discover 
the world. That's how we discover why we're here and what we're doing. That's how we discover what we need to be doing is we ask questions, and that is a good thing today. But thankfully, God has given us in his word the answers to life's most difficult questions. You know, one thing I hate is dash lights, and I've already, I'm have telling you all these things that I hate. Ikea, but I also hate dash lights in your car. So when you get in your car and you crank that bad boy up, the number one light that you never want to see come on is what? The check engine light. Because then the question is, well, what's wrong with my car? Is my transmission about to fall out of the bottom of this thing, or is it just an O2 sensor? You know, what, what, what's going on here? And every once in a while, you'll get those weird little lights that you have no idea what they're for, you know? But here's the thing. What you do is, is you go in your owner's manual, and there's a little section in your owner's manual. It's got like a little key. It's got all the pictures of the little dash lights, and it tells you what each one's about. I know Hannah, she was uh, driving somewhere in my little car one time, and she called me and said, this, this check engine light came on. And I said, oh, no. She was pretty good ways off, and I'm thinking, then this thing's going to break down on her. I think it might have even been dark when you were driving or something like that. Well, once she got back home, I saw what the light was. Looked it up, and it was actually just a reminder to change the oil. Well, I never use those things. I change the oil based on the odometer. I don't pay attention to those lights. So I was thankful, though, that the instruction manual told me, hey, it's nothing to worry about. Just a reminder to change the oil, right? So when we think about that, the Bible does the same thing for us. You know, when you're kind of going through life and, and these events are happening, maybe your marriage is struggling, maybe you're having difficulty raising your children, maybe you're having issues at work and your boss is giving you a hard time, maybe you're depressed, maybe you have anxiety, all these different things that come at us throughout life, are, it's kind of like these check engine lights that keep popping on. You know, and we're trying to figure out, well, how do I fix this? How do I make this better? The Bible is that manual that we need to be investing in. That bi the Bible is what's going to tell us how we can fix the issues in our life. Now listen, sometimes it's not just as easy as one, two, three. Sometimes it's not just a quick fix. Sometimes it takes a little bit of work. Sometimes it's painful. But I will assure you that this Bible has everything in it that you need to fix the problems in your life. I assure you and I promise you that from the bottom of my heart. You know, if any of you have ever studied philosophy, philosophy has three different categories that really all of the ancient philosophers said are important in understanding what life and reality is all about. Those three categories that are so uh, important and popular in philosophy, number one is ontology, then epistemology, then axiology. And I'm going to tell you what those actually are. And then I'm going to show you how God's word actually answers all of the philosophical questions that our secular world and even in ancient history actually answers. Number one is ontology. Ontology really asks, what is real? So in philosophy, it's the question, what is real? Now you may think, Ben, that's, a, that's an easy thing to answer. But, it, but it's really not. You have people in this world who believe that everything they see is an illusion. They believe that nothing is real. They believe that even they themselves are an illusion. So you have all these different minds. When you go to Eastern religious practices, when you go into like Buddhism and Hinduism, you see a lot of that in Asia. You know, we, we take certain things for granted in our Western civilization because we have this undergirding of Christian uh, uh, foundation of Christianity, Judeo-Christian foundation. But if you go into these Eastern uh, Asian countries and you go into some of these Islamic countries and these African countries, they don't necessarily agree with us on simple things like what is real and what is reality. So there's people in the world, because they're all coming here now, even in Asheville, Asheville is a hub for Eastern philosophy. 
You know, when you go into Asheville, uh, Charlotte and I went to this place called Fired Up Lounge on a, a recent date that we had. And basically, you go in there and you can paint pottery, and, and Charlotte loves to paint. Well, as we're walking to this place, we see a storefront after storefront of statues in their windows of Buddha. We went by this one, and it had all these Hindu gods just sitting in the, in the storefront windows. And we start to think and realize, we're in the Bible Belt. You know, we, we take that for granted that just everyone understands Christianity. Everyone understands life and reality, but that's not the case anymore. So it's important for us as Christians to be able to answer those difficult philosophical questions. So ontology is what is real or what is first things? How did things begin? Guess what? The Bible has the answer. Genesis 1.1, I just mentioned a few minutes ago. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the ontological answer to that question as a Christian. In the beginning, God. Because that answers everything else. If God truly is the creator, and if in the beginning he did make everything, then what he says goes. What he says is truth is truth. What he says is right is right. What he says is wrong is wrong. And now everything else that we believe flows from Genesis 1-1. So then we start to ask, well, what does God say? If God is right and God is uh, the creator of all things, then what does God say about marriage? Well, guess what? We know what God says about marriage. It is a forever relationship between one man and one woman. So then we get to filter everything else that comes our way in society through Genesis 1-1. Now, we can say... The world is saying something different. The world is saying that no, marriage is not just uh, a relationship between two people, a male and a female. But the world is saying that marriage is fluid and it can change and that uh, genders are different and they can change. And the world is saying that and we as Christians are having to deal with that. And we're having to say, well, how do we approach and answer those difficult questions that people are asking that we work with? We have to let them understand and know that God created all things in the beginning. And what God says is truth. And literally everything else in life, if you filter it through that idea of Genesis 1-1, you can figure out the questions that are so difficult to answer. You may say, well, Ben, people may not accept that. They don't have to accept it for it to be true. They don't have to say, okay, I agree with you for it to be true. Most, as a matter of fact, are going to say, you're crazy and you're a bigot and you're narrow-minded. But that's okay. Listen, I believe ultimate truth. I serve the creator of the heavens and the earth. And listen, Jesus was rejected by his own people as he was preaching the truth. He was and is God in the flesh, and they rejected his truth. Hey, you're not in such bad company when you stick with the word of God, even when people say no to it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 is another verse that we can literally filter everything through that answers that ontological question, how did everything begin? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was formed out of God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. You know what that's saying? God created everything out of nothing. By the word of his mouth. So guess who's qualified to determine everything that applies to us in our lives? God. Guess who's qualified to answer all of life's most difficult questions? God. So you know what? 
It clears the waters for us. It helps us now have a clear understanding of life, of reality, of what is real. That second question that many people ask, it's known as epistemology. And what epistemology is, is it's the essential question, how do you know? So we know the ontological question is, how did everything begin? The epistemological question is, how do we even know what you're saying is true? How can I verify what we believe is true? That is an important question and a question that people are asking. I want you to think about it like this. Let's say 10 people come up to you and they say, we saw a tree in the park and we're telling you that it's real. It's an actual tree. And what they say is, is we all touched it. We could feel the, the texture of the bark. We smelled it, smelled like a tree. We, we, we saw it with our own eyes. It looked like a tree. We beheld this tree and we are testifying to you that that tree is real. What is really the only conclusion you can make without actually seeing the tree for yourself? It's real. You have no reason to doubt their testimony at all. A lot of people will say, well, they must have all been hallucinating. Prove it. Well, they must all be crazy. Prove it. You can't prove it. You're assuming things that aren't even in the equation. The Bible is the same way. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3, the Bible says this. This is Paul talking. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. A lot of skeptical people are going to say, so what? How do you know? How do you know that he rose from the dead? How do you know that he died on the cross? How do you know these things? Paul answers that epistemological question when he says this. Verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And that's what Paul was saying. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying, you know how I know? People saw him. People touched him. People heard him. People even saw him eat. Now, this is after Jesus rose from the dead, by the way. I'm not talking about before his death, burial and resurrection. These are testimonies from over 500 different people that say, we saw Jesus, we touched Jesus, we felt Jesus, we walked with Jesus, we know Jesus rose from the dead. And now today, you have skeptics that will say, well, those people had to be hallucinating. They had to be eating mushrooms or something. You know, they were on opiates. Listen. What evidence do you have that those 500 people were hallucinating? None. They're assuming and they're presuming things that aren't even true. Listen, if a lawyer gets evidence that 10 people saw a tree, touched a tree, then if he's trying to make a case in a court of law that that tree is real, guess what? He's going to win that case because he's got 10 witnesses whose stories corroborate across the board. How do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Because people saw him. Because we have the testimony here in the word written for us so that we can know, not blind faith, not I hope so faith, not, you know, I'm really banking on this Jesus thing because I'm really hoping it's true because I want to go to heaven when I die. No, no, no. It's factual evidence based upon testimony, written word. It's kind of like the Civil War. 
Raise your hand if you were in the Civil War. Raise your hand if you fought for the Union or the Confederacy. Okay, we got a few liars in the house, so we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I'm just playing, guys. But seriously, that's a lie. But <laughs> Raise your hand if you doubt the Civil War even took place. Nobody? Well, how do you know it happened? You weren't, you weren't there. Oh, wait a minute. Testimony. People who were there saw it happen. They wrote it down. And today we have those writings where we can know what took place. So why do we hold the Bible to a higher standard? Why do we expect God to come out of thin air and say, I'm real and everything in the Bible is real? We don't expect anything else to come about that way. But yet we believe it with all of our heart. And we'll die for it and we'll stand on it. Listen, let's stop trying to hold the Bible to some standard that we don't hold anything else to. And let's understand that factually and evidentially, based upon the testimony of men and women who saw with their very own eyes, Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Jesus did indeed die on a cross. Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. And it all goes back to, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 3.15, it says that there will be one that will come that will crush the head of the serpent. And throughout the entire Old Testament, we have a building of this narrative and this story of one day when that one would be born in a manger in Bethlehem. And he would grow up and he would pay the price for the sins of all mankind. Today, we stand on the truth. That's how we know. And then that last question we need to answer philosophically, axiology. Axiology is this question, what is good? And what is wrong? What is bad? And what is right? Hey, isn't the world asking that question today? Isn't the world as, it's kind of easy to say something is flat out wrong when it doesn't actually personally affect you. But then, parents, whenever you have a child who is struggling with homosexuality, or, or you have a child who is struggling with their gender identity, or you have a child who is experimenting with drugs or is not uh, keeping themselves for marriage and sexual relationships, it begins to get real hard at that point, doesn't it? Because all of a sudden, it's personal. All of a sudden, it means something to you. All of a sudden, it's your child. It's not some figurative person that you don't know, but it's actually someone you love and someone you care about. And now you're tasked with the decision, am I going to be okay with this or am I going to speak into their lives and try to teach them what is right? Am I going to go against the norm and tell my child that the way they're living is wrong or am I going to go against what society is telling me to do? Listen, there is an understanding in psychology today that you should not name your child until they're six or seven years old. Because you don't want to imply to them what their gender is. You want them to decide for themselves. Now listen, if you go to a psychologist and you're asking questions about your child, you may get those kind of answers from them. And now you need to determine based upon a Christian worldview and based upon a Christian understanding, what are you going to embrace and what are you going to reject? What are you going to understand as truth and what are you going to understand as a lie? It all goes back to the Word of God. The Word of God is very careful to teach us all of these things. What is good? What is right? What is wrong? Well, you find that in the most simplest part of the Bible, the Ten Commandments. Literally, the foundation of most uh, uh, standards of law in the Western Hemisphere of the world for thousands of years. It's been the Ten Commandments. 
You look at the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is preaching, and Jesus starts to speak about lust. He starts to speak about hate. He starts to teach how those things are wrong, how being meek and humble is good. Listen, the Bible teaches us what is right and what is wrong. We don't have to question that. Listen, even if it is a personal situation in your own home, you must stand in love on the Word of God. If you love your child, if you love your family member, if you love your friends, and they're living in sin, if you really care about them, you're going to teach them from the Word of God what is right and what is wrong. Listen, hate is not loving them enough to tell them the truth. Hate is letting them be to their own selves and living in their sin. If I hate someone, I'll let them live in sin. If I hate someone, I'll pat them on the back in their sin and make them think it's okay. But listen, if I love someone, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell them the truth. And I'm not going to be hateful. I'm not going to be judgmental. Hey, listen, people say, don't judge me. The Bible says not to judge. That's right, the Bible does say that. But when the Bible has already passed judgment about a particular thing, it's not me judging them. The Bible's already judged them. All I'm doing is communicating to them what the Bible says. Now, they may say it's judgment, they may, and that's fine. But what they need to understand is, I'm not judging you, the Bible already has. And therefore, you have the option to either say, I'll go with God, or I'll reject God. And that has to be up to them. So the Bible's teaching here in verse 17, so that the man of God, back to 2 Timothy 3, uh, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here we see that the Bible is attesting to itself, testifying of its own validity and its own importance. And it's saying that it in and of itself is profitable for these things. It's profitable for teaching. When we see that word there, the Greek literally means to teach doctrines, to teach truth. The Bible should be our foundation when we teach our children what life is all about, when we teach unbelievers the truth of what the world is. It's profitable for rebuking, it says. The Bible is profitable for calling people out when they're wrong. The Bible is made for that. It's supposed to do that. Don't think that when you tell someone they're wrong that you're somehow hurting them or or offending them. Yes, it may offend them, but the Bible is meant for that. The Bible is meant for you to take Scripture in context, share it with people so that you hope they'll change their lives. That's what the Bible actually exists for. And then it says correcting. The Greek word there actually means restoration to an upright position. Hey, when a brother or sister falls into sin, you know what we're to do? We're to take the word and lovingly correct them. What that means is, it's not just saying, you're wrong, you're bad, and you need to get right with God. No, it's coming alongside of them and restoring them to an upright position. You know what, I'm glad the Lord Jesus Christ saved me and redeemed me. I'm glad that he didn't give me what I deserve. And listen, in the Christian life, we're going to run across people who don't deserve forgiveness. By the way, if it's forgiveness, it's undeserving anyways. So quit waiting on someone to apologize to you and forgive them because for Christ's sake, God forgave you. When we look through that, we also see that it's profitable for training in righteousness. And basically, the Bible offers a comprehensive training or education in the development of a worldview. And what that means is the Bible teaches you how to view the world. The Bible teaches you how to respond to what's happening in the world. The Bible teaches you how to respond to other people and to other ideas. It teaches you how to filter information and to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is truth and what is lie. You know, have you, any of y'all ever heard of Babylon B? Okay, so what that is, it's Christian satire. 
And what satire is, is it's, it's, it's conveyed as though it's literal, but it's actually meant to be a joke. And when I share stuff from Babylon B, Pastor Dennis used to have this issue all the time. There'd be people so mad because sometimes the Babylon B would say stuff like, um, I shared one here recently. It talks about how different denominations expect people to dress. And uh, one, one of the, uh, the Episcopal church one actually said, they don't care what you dress because no one will be there when you get there anyways. You know? And there's people that get mad about that because they're like, well, somebody's saying this is real news and this ain't real. It's a joke. Okay, it's okay to have a good time. And I think our society has lost their ability to digest information and understand what is meant to be a joke and what's not. Quit carrying a chip on your shoulder. Quit looking to be offended. Hey, sometimes it's okay to laugh. But you've got to actually have the awareness to be able to, to get through this information without getting mad all the time. And with your, an ability to actually know what a joke is. And we've lost that. And I think it goes back to understanding the Christian worldview and how to digest information. J listen, just because Fox News or ABC News says something's true does not mean it's true. Amen. Don't get all fired up and leave your living room after you just watch the news cycle and saying this, this, and this is happening. Because I promise you, just because they say it's happening doesn't mean it's happening. Okay? They are not the determiners of truth. Amen? And I'm thankful for that, by the way. There was actually a young uh, uh, a gentleman who attended a, a United Methodist church. And I'm not here to, ba to bash the United Methodist, but I will call them out when they're not standing on Scripture. And, and nowadays they're not, by the way. And, and you need to hear that. But um, I was having a conversation with him because the United Methodist Church is actually uh, dealing with an impending split. And they've put the split off because of COVID. But, but once COVID goes away, which it never will, they're going to come back together and they're going to uh, discuss how this split is going to take place. So basically, the United Methodist Church is going to give this other portion of the uh, United Methodist Church, $25 million, and they're going to let them keep their properties, and they're going to let them keep everything, and they're going to have a formal split where now you'll have two denominations. Well, I was talking to this guy, and I said, hey, which side of the split are y'all going to fall? You know, because the United Methodist Church is a very liberal wing of Protestant denominations, and the reason they're splitting from these other churches is because they want to have, you know, homosexual clergy, and they want to be able to embrace LGBTQ um, identities and all these things into their church. And, and he told me, he said, well, we're probably going to fall on the liberal side. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah. He said, we just want to welcome everybody in, and we just want to, you know, be inclusive to everyone. And I said, hey, man, I said, I'm right there with you. I said, over at Pole Creek, anybody and everybody's allowed to attend our services. Listen, we want people to come to our church. Now, where the dividing line is is when they want to join or when they want to teach. We've got to make sure that there's evidence of repentance before that happens. But they're allowed to attend. We want them here. We want them to hear the gospel, and we will love them, and we will care for them while they're here. And he said, well, you know, really the only one in the Bible that ever spoke against homosexuality was Paul. He said, Jesus never really said anything about it. So then I got to thinking. I was like, well, you're probably right. I said, but it all goes back to, how do you view the Word of God? Do you just view the words of Jesus as the Word of God? Or do you view the whole thing as the Word of God? Because if 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is true, guess what? The words of Paul are the words of God. The words of Paul are the words of Jesus. So when Paul says something is wrong and it's inspired and it's in our Bible, guess what? It's wrong. And that's where we have to stand as a church. But we have a world out there that is making concessions so that they can fit the world into their church. 
And we can't be like that, guys. Listen, you want the Holy Spirit to take his hand off of Pole Creek? Let's embrace the ideologies of the world. Let's let human wisdom infiltrate our church. And let's not stand on the word of God. Today we must be a church where our foundation is the scriptures. So when we think about all these things, that last question is this. And this is the, if you're taking notes, write this down. What does the Bible accomplish? We find that in verse 17 where the Bible says this. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know what that means? Mature, fitted for the job, and adequate for the task. That's what the Bible's for. So that we as believers can be mature and ready to do the work of the Lord. So that we can know what truth is, so that we can then respond to a lost and a dying world that's asking difficult questions. You know, sometimes that's hard and sometimes that hurts. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Sometimes the word of God hurts because it cuts. And it cuts deep. But you know what? If you let the word of God cut you, and you say, yes, Lord, I'll submit and I'll repent, when it heals back, oh, man, it's so much more beautiful. You become mature. You become someone fitted for the task. You know, the world is asking today, what is truth? You know what Jesus said when confronted with that? Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And that's when he was praying to God. And asking God to bless his disciples. Jesus himself, your word is truth, God. But you know what the world's asking? John 18, 38. Pilate himself asked this question at Jesus' trial. He looked at Jesus and he said, what is truth? I guess he didn't realize that Jesus had answered that question sometime before. Today, maybe you're saying, Ben, I'm not assuming that God is real, that Jesus Christ is real. Well, I need you to ask a question today. You need to ask yourself, what is truth? Because I'm giving you the inspired word of God this morning that God himself said that his word is truth. And his word says that if you don't confess your sins and trust in Jesus, that you'll go to hell. And if I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you that this morning. Today, you have been presented the truth of God's word. And remember what I said about free will. God is going to let you decide whether or not to accept that truth or reject it. Our altar is going to be open as our worship team. You guys can go ahead and start to come to the platform. As our worship team plays and, and we worship the Lord, this altar is open. Our pastors will be up here ready to minister to you. Maybe you're dealing with an issue in, at home with your family and you say, you know what, I just need some prayer about my marriage. I just need some prayer about my child and their rebellion. That's what we're here for. You know what Pole Creek is? We're a hospital for sinners. We're a hospital for the brokenhearted and those who are hurt. You don't have to be ashamed about your weaknesses. You don't have to, to, to feel like you've got to put on a front here. We're all messed up. We all need Jesus. So I want you to know that this altar is open. I'm going to lead us in prayer. We're going to worship. You come down here if you feel so moved by the Holy Spirit.